I want to revisit a passage was proclaimed some years back from Matthew chapter 8. And I think it's pertinent and pressing for our understanding. Would you be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Would you be a genuine follower of the Son of God? That will essentially be what we consider today as we look into Matthew chapter 8 and verses 18 through 22. Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side, that is from Capernaum to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And a certain scribe came and said unto him, Master, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And another of his disciples said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. The Lord didn't mince words. Of course, we live in a day when men think that they can just make their own rules. And the way they think, they can then follow Christ. But that's not the way it is biblically. We follow him according to what he commands us, not what we think will be okay. And, of course, we, we're going to see some incredible things from these two would-be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Historically, in the life of Christ, after the giving of the Sermon on the Mount, in which he brought forth things the people had never heard, and they recognized the power and the authority with which he spoke, the Sermon on the Mount was concluded with when he had finished these sayings the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes in the synagogue at Capernaum the Lord of course taught proclaimed the truth of God and in Mark chapter 1 verse 22 Mark records they were astonished at his doctrine. Then, of course, there were so many miracles that in the Gospel of John we learned that if they were all dealt with, we wouldn't have enough paper for the books to be printed. So many miracles, more than recorded in Scripture. In those days, there was great excitement there was a quick spread of the news concerning the Lord Jesus throughout the land. We learn that in various places in Scripture. There was great excitement, a lot of excitement about him. Why so? They believed that he was the Messiah that was to come. They believed, like John taught this morning, there was a messianic hope that was there. They were looking for the Messiah to come to the nation. And they, astonished at his teaching, moved by his miracles, deeply, some, concluded that this is the disciple. I mean, this is the Christ. This is the promised one of old that God was going to send to the nation. So you read this question, they come, is not this the Christ? And so great at this time was the following that his true and closer disciples said in Mark chapter 1, verse 37, 
All men seek for thee. All men seek for thee. So we read in our chapter, in verse 18, that great multitudes followed him. This would bring about, eventually we know, the envy of the Jewish leaders, and eventually this hatred would grow and grow until it would bring about, providentially, the murder of the Lord Jesus Christ, the murderous design of the cross. Out of the excitement that took place at that time, at that hour, many had a faith. Notice I didn't say the faith. Men, uh, many, had a faith, but it was not real. It was superficial. It was not based upon the true hearing and understanding of the Word of God. It did not recognize who he was and why he came. The concern at that time, the desire at that time, the messianic hope among the Jews at that time was for a Christ who would come and would exalt them to a place of supremacy in the world, who would bring them great earthly blessings and put them on high. That was the common Jewish hope of the Messiah that would give them victory over their enemies. And so, many would come to the Lord Jesus in what we might call an earthly carnal desire. They did not know their condition. They did not come to him as sinners in need of a Savior, they didn't comprehend that sinfulness that was in them. They were not brought under such a conviction that it would bring them to a genuine repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So in John chapter 2 and in verse 23, it's recorded, Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles he did. That's a sight emotional experience they had. They saw the miracles. They were moved. They were excited. Then they believed that he was the Messiah. But this, of course, didn't fool the Lord at all because the scripture in John chapter 2 immediately goes on to say he knew what was in man. He knew their heart. He could read them. He knew their motives. He knew they didn't even know their real need. They were never brought under a conviction that convinced them that they were defiled, sinners, lost, undone, desperately in need of one to save them. The Gospels thus speak of disciples and it can sometimes talk of disciples in an outward sense as some of these were we read of here there were nominal followers they were taken up with the excitement of the hour of these it is written that when they realized that he did not come to meet their own fleshly desires, he didn't come to make them rich in the world. He didn't come to give them pleasures and ease and honor. When the Lord began teaching that God is an absolute sovereign over everything, that he and he only could bring men to himself in a true saving sense. 
that all was in his sovereign hands. We read in John chapter 6 then that many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Men do not want a sovereign God, an absolute sovereign. In our text, the Lord is at this time leaving Capernaum, which he'd made what we might call his headquarters. He was going to head to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, the huge lake. There was a crowd, a large crowd that had gathered. And out of that excited crowd steps forth two men, two would-be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Desiring, obviously, to move from an outward kind of discipleship to become disciples indeed. Sincere. Sincere in their aspiration to be committed to him. But knowing absolutely nothing of the true condition of their own hearts. It's a solemn thing when Jeremiah is given to write the heart is deceitful above all things. And desperately wicked. Who can know it? The heart deceives one. One's own heart is the greatest object of deception for one. We tend to think of ourselves differently than we are. They profess their commitment to him. To him who, as he does all, Knew all hearts, knew every motive, knew the thoughts, knew the real desires, knew what they were really seeking. The one of them will rush into a commitment. He's confident, he's sincere. A commitment he thinks he can carry out. The other, wanting to follow Christ, but having a pressing duty before him. A sacred family matter. A sacred matter among the Jews. Of burying his father. He professes that he will follow Christ but not now. I've got something more important I've got to take care of. The interchange is incredibly instructive. Lending itself to application today to much shallowness in professing Christianity as well as the particular conditions in our text. And of what it means. What it really means. The whithersoever he goeth. And so we're going to look at this first would-be follower in our text. And the Lord would correct him in his thinking because he was unthinking upon a right basis. He was thinking upon a selfish, self-centered basis. That's often what modern Christianity, quote, unquote, appeals to. The selfish desires of men. Something for them something that will give them great happiness in the world instead of bringing them to the conviction of what they are by nature and what God alone 
does to save sinners. So this man had an emotional commitment. To begin with, his desire was sincere. It wasn't a phony thing. He was confident in his commitment to follow Christ whithersoever thou goest. The problem, the problem, obviously known fully to the Lord, was that his whithersoever thou goest was without any knowledge or preparation whatsoever of what it means to follow Christ. And where following Christ may very well take him. Many knew. Many there be. Who seem to begin so very well. They start out well. They can say the right things. They can appear to be sincere. Starting out well. For a time they might show great promise. But who in the passing of time will, as biblical language, fall away. They were never truly purged from the love of the world, the love of this fallen world, the love of things, the love of ease, the love of pleasures above the love of God. They never were purged from it. They have no thought of what it means to leave all to follow Christ. But thinking, a feeling that following Christ means joy without sorrow. Heaven instead of hell. They fail to count the cost. They do not count the cost. Or what it really means to follow Christ. Whithersoever he goeth. You do realize that emotions are rather transitory things. They can change as easily as the wind can change its direction. They can be up one minute and down the next. They're transitory. In this would-be disciple, there's no true understanding of the Lord's requirement, whosoever he be of you, that forsaketh not all that he hath, cannot be my disciple. That's quite a word, isn't it? Anything and everything that stands in the way of submission by faith to him and following him must be forsaken. Abram is called out of Ur of the Chaldees. He's to leave family, home, everything he knew. God himself was to be the supreme object of his heart and his following. He was, as we learn in the 22nd chapter of Genesis, you know what happened there. He was commanded to sacrifice the son he loved. Isaac. We know God stopped him, but he showed his heart, the reality. There are those that want Christ. So they think they want Christ. They want heaven. They don't want to go to hell. They want to go to heaven. They want to have the assurance that they're going to have a good life in the world. <laughs> they want temporal blessings. 
but they still want the world. Not Christ or the world, as is the case, but Christ and the world. As long as I can have religion, I still have my pleasures, my desires in this world. My seeking of the things of this life as priority, then I'm going to be a follower of Christ. No, they're not. When Christ calls, indeed, he calls effectually. It's out of the fallen world. It's unto himself and to himself alone. To be no longer of the world, to belong to him and him only. As he said to his disciples in John 15, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Conflict between the fallen world and those in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who truly belong to him, are not ashamed of him, follow him, at whatever the cost might be. This is the end result of redemption. Not only forgiven for sin, but redeemed unto the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Who gave himself for our sins. That he might redeem unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. So to draw a figure of speech from the context, most likely this man thought of the words sometimes we use, smooth sailing. This is the Messiah. He's going to exalt this nation. He's going to bring great prosperity. He's going to bring all the things we've longed for in this world. They thought of the Messiah. Smooth sailing. All would be to his great blessing, his benefit, his enrichment, his honor. But he had no understanding of what it really means to follow Christ. I don't think there are very many in professing Christianity who know what it means to follow Christ. That's why we need a mighty moving of God and His Spirit in churches and in this nation. Change things if that would happen. That's what we cry for. Even the next event in our chapter 8 of Matthew, even the next event can also serve as kind of a parable showing that following Christ to truly be with him will involve times of trial and great difficulty. Verse 18 of this chapter, we read, Now when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave commandment to depart unto the other side. He and the twelve were going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And in verses 23 and 24, And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Great tempest. Massive storm. Didn't bother him at all. 
But there was a lesson for his disciples in that. Great trouble immediately came. But they would make it to the other side because he was in the ship. We're going to make it to the other side who know the Lord of glory, who know him and belong to him and follow him. There can indeed be an initial self-confident commitment. I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But one void of true commitment that from a heart that truly trusts Christ and loves him above all, loves him supremely, that is self-denied, desires to follow him understanding that might be at great cost in this world. Yea, it will be. So the Lord's brief reply to this man is incredibly instructive in verse 20. And Jesus saith unto him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. What was he doing? He was correcting this man's thinking. He was correcting the thinking that, yeah, all is going to be smooth sailing. No, it's going to be like that event that followed <laughs> that serves as a parable. Going to be pleasure, ease, worldly joy, fun. No, it's not. Corrective. It wasn't a harsh reproof the Lord brought to this man. He doesn't chide him. He doesn't repel him by any harsh judgmentalism. Men do that. The self-righteous do that. But he didn't. The man had made a rash commitment. He didn't think about it. Self-confident was he in his tone. I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And yet the Lord who will have no one follow him in a misunderstanding of what it means corrects his thinking. He's thinking of reward without difficulty. That would be deceptive. And the Lord will not have anyone deceived. He who came into the world with no room in the inn, only a manger for his bed, likely straw for his pillow, smelly animals for his companions. Only a manger. He who depended upon the kindness of his friends for support. He who was placed in a barred grave at his death. After his clothing was gambled for. Had not where to lay his head. That's no little thing, what the Lord was telling this man. The creatures that he created, like the foxes with their holes, and the birds with their nests, or any kind of animal you want to look to in this world. I like to watch animal programs. It's amazing what God created in them. It's amazing to watch them 
which could not come about but by a special creative hand of an infinite God and put in them the way they would take care of themselves, the way they would develop their own dwellings. It's amazing. But the Son of God and Son of Man wandered homeless in the world. Homeless in the world that he created. It goes beyond literal. But in the literal sense, if this man would follow him, he's going to have to follow him throughout the land without a place to call his home. Not going to be a pleasure journey. Not sailing across the lake to return back in a few days. But day after day, day after day, year after year, until the end of the journey. But those who truly follow Christ, that journey will end with him. If he would come after the Lord Jesus, can't be in a confident, self-seeking thing. He would have to commit himself completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Completely to his care. To trust him. And to trust everything he had into the hands of the Lord Jesus. And the only way that would be done would be in the same way that Paul came to have no certain dwelling place. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. That we are convinced was a deposit of himself completely into the care into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ oh yes rough road he would follow but not without a true joy because the Lord himself was his joy and he looked at the end of that course not all of the great things he could gather in the midst of it but the end of that course I desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. I wonder how many so-called Christians can in truth say that. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. So you see, in essence, the Lord is making known to this would-be follower that he must be willing to have him, the Lord Jesus, who is the Christ, have him alone. If he would truly follow him wherever he goes, wherever he leads. In the spiritual sense, must we not be willing to turn our backs on this world and its ungodly ways? To have him as our only true and lasting portion. To become pilgrims and strangers looking for a city which hath foundations like Abraham, whose builder and maker is God, knowing that our true inheritance is not what we're going to gather from those who die in our family in this world, but our true inheritance is with him in glory. Laid up treasure there 
It's what we should be after. Because our true home is not here. Our true home is a heavenly one with our Lord himself. So, let's consider the second would-be follower. His request and the unexpected answer in verses 21 and 22. And another of his disciples, disciples in that outward sense, said unto him, Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. And this must have shocked him. But Jesus said unto him, Follow me, and let the dead bury their dead. At the moment, in the heat of the hour, in the emotions of the excitement that was taking place, This man genuinely wanted to follow Christ. But what he thought, not only a natural, but actually a sacred duty, he had to perform. Promises, well, after I get this done, I'll follow you. After this important thing I've got to do is done, then I'll follow you. There is absolutely nothing to indicate that he was pretentious. He was sincere in his desire to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Among the Jews... It was a sacred duty for a son to take charge of the burial arrangements of father or mother, as did uh, Isaac and Jacob for Abraham, for instance, or Joseph for Jacob. That was a sacred duty among the Jews. Of course, we know that even the Lord himself joined a funeral procession, didn't he? Although the service didn't last all that long. That was one of the shortest funeral processions in history. Why? He raised the man from his death and gave him to his mother. Back. So the Lord is not here giving a general precept regarding burying the dead or funeral services. In our day, that's a prime opportunity for the gospel. But the Lord knows what is in the man. Like he knows every heart, every tendency, every characteristic that one has, every motive, and all that's behind it. And the Lord knew something about this man he did not know about himself. He knows a lot about us we don't know about ourselves. And sometimes it's pretty painful, but blessed when he reveals ourselves to us and leads us in a right way. So what he does here is put this man on trial as to who, how truly committed he is. Is he really committed to following Christ? He will follow Christ, but he has a pressing duty that he must first attend to. Then, as he thought, then he would return. And if we may draw an immediate application to ourselves, it is that the natural worldly pressures of life are never to take precedence over 
the spiritual, the kingdom of our Lord, the Christ, who is our Savior. And the things of his kingdom are to be first. Not part of the time. Not at this little time. Not on Sunday morning. At all times. At all times. Every day. At work. At leisure. His kingdom. Priority. He. Priority. We understand then. That when the Lord says, let the dead bury the dead, the meaning is to let those who are spiritually dead attend to the burying of the physically dead. And when competition between the things that belong unto God and those that belong to nature conflict, there's a real and great spiritual danger in the heart that says, suffer me first to attend to my earthly duty. Suffer me first to do this thing that is pressing upon me. And there's a great principle here to be considered and a great danger to be avoided if you and I if you and I are to be among the genuine believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anything. No matter how reasonable it seems that is put before obedience to Christ and his commands. Any earthly duty or desire, be it business, pleasure, or any pursuit, no matter how right it seems in itself, that hinders my loving, following, and serving the Lord Jesus Christ above all, is self-delusive. It's a solemn thing. And I dare say, we all have the tendency that we must recognize and decisively avoid to let earthly pursuits, no matter how right they seem in themselves, to take precedence over the plain responsibility that we have from our Lord. The great problem, yea, the great danger, is that when this is allowed, it doesn't stop there. In the world, when one neglects what is right and they engage in what is wrong, even though they think, well, I'm just going to try it, and that's all. It doesn't happen that way. The thing that is wrong they engage in will be engaged in again and again. And again, because something else will always be showing up, some business, some family matters far less than the burial of a loved one, some supposed greater need at the moment will always be there to press and hinder our first responsibility. And if we think we can follow Christ while giving in to these competing pressures, all we're doing is deceiving ourselves. Yeah, and I know. Sometimes we realize that and we have to repent. Repentance is not simply an initial conversion. Repentance follows us all, all our days long. 
Because one has a new heart, or one who has a new heart, desires to walk in God's ways and is convicted. And they know they've done wrong. And excuses are made. And things of this world are put in place. Competing pressures win. And we can become self-deceived. Well, and that brings us to this. Who is it that can make such a claim as this? Who is it that can make such a claim as this? And state, whosoever forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. Think about it. Who is it? That we command, or he commands, that we put him and his kingdom above every earthly pursuit. Always seeking it first. Even when other things seem sometimes to be so right and so pressing. Dare we hear a solemn claim from him again. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. That means you've got to die to the old self. And belong to him only. No one. Not an angel. Not Gabriel. No angel. No man. Be ever so exalted. Could ever make such a claim. unless he possesses absolute supreme lordship over everything without any exception. Supreme lordship. He created all things. He's the reason you exist. Did you know that? He is the reason you and I exist. The earth is his and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him. He does with his own whatsoever he will. It belongs to him. And he can make the claim. Whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath, he cannot be my disciple. You know what I'm but setting forth? Biblical Christianity. Then the question comes down to, is he your Lord indeed? Is he your Lord? Is he the one to whom you yield your obedience? Is he the one who has claim upon and has your heart and your supreme love? It's a piercing question he asked in Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Oh, it's for sure. He convicts us sometimes, even we who have been saved by his grace. He convicts. 
when he speaks, and he speaks. And we have to repent again. Repentance is necessary for us. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 7, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. He wasn't writing to unbelievers. He was writing to those he claimed were the called of Jesus Christ. There are times when you and I need repentance. If God is pleased in his great mercy to bring Men want to call a revival among his churches. These things will be set in order again. What I preach to you is strange to people today. But it is the word of God. Peter knew who the Lord was. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's no little confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. For sure, he didn't realize yet what was going to happen. But he knew who he was. He didn't yet know the full reason for which he came. But he knew who he was. And when the vast multitudes were going away because they didn't like these things like I preached to you this morning. He spoke for the apostolic band. To whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. And what he said also at another time was right. We have left all to follow thee. We who are saved by God's wondrous grace. We who know why he came. To offer himself. As the sacrifice for our sins. And to bring us to God. And calls us to come and take freely of him, freely of the water of life, without money and without price. You and I who've been called, who've come to trust him, to know who he is, to know why he came, to know that we were sinners indeed. And the most grievous thing to us then became sin. Not simply little difficulties in the world. And saved us from our sins. By the offering of himself and bringing us to God. We have the greatest incentive. We have the only true incentive. To follow him. Whithersoever he goeth. Because we can say with Paul he loved me gave himself for me. To think of the gloriousness of his love. That he came for me, the sinner. Selfish, self-seeking, self-exalting, ungodly, vile, Desiring things that are filthy. He came to save me. He loved me. He loved me. He died in my place. He took all the punishment for my own sins. Because he loved me. 
He gave his all. He gave his all. Are we not going to follow him now? To belong to him? To find him to be our heart's portion? Well, if this doesn't move us to yield heart and obedience first to him, preeminently above everything else, I don't know what will. And we might ask ourselves, do I really know the wondrousness of his free grace, his glorious salvation? To know that when my course is finished in this world, of which now I have become a pilgrim and stranger, no longer to live in its ways, but to live unto him. To trust him. Always putting myself in his care and in his hands. Because if he loved me enough to die in my place, he still does. This moves the heart. To say to be thine. Yea, thine alone. O Lord, I come. If by sovereign grace you've come to believe who he is and believe that his death was the death to sin, that God who raised him from the dead has become your eternal father, that you're loved with an everlasting love. Does that not elicit from your heart the purpose? Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. May God move in each of our hearts. To follow our Lord. I think there was a hymn you said it would go to this message you wanted us to sing. Okay. Stand and sing four hundred eighty one. Four eighty one. Yeah.